Well, how you doing? Nice sunny day outside. Good day for a community cleanup, I reckon, AJ. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, got the wrong end of my book. I was about to preach last week's sermon, or the one before, actually. Hey, by the way, speaking of which, what an amazing sermon from John uh, Adia last week. Uh, if you were here, um, yeah, give him a round of applause because it was um, absolutely fantastic. And it's such a privilege to have you share uh, from your knowledge and expertise and your research, John, with us. So thank you. Uh, if you missed it, really encourage you to go back, watch it online uh, on YouTube, uh, or you can listen to it as a download, a, po- a podcast uh, through your favourite podcasting app or available on our website. So do go back and listen to it. It was an absolute corker. Uh, and we'll continue in that series today and for the coming weeks. Now, in recent years, uh, my wife Louise and I have become uh, good friends with a, with a couple that we've come to love and admire enormously. Now, I'm not going to mention their names, um, but hi, uh, if you watch this at some stage. Uh, but they're some of the most decent people that I know. One is a medical doctor, now high up in the management of a local uh, health uh, service, and the other oversees uh, a local non-profit which provides disability support and disability employment services, which is something um, that is very dear to our heart as a family. And uh, not only that, uh, but their long-term aim, rather than just retiring uh, at the end of those careers and enjoying the good life, their long-term aim is to self-fund serving in an organisation like Medicine Sans Frontières or similar. Uh, and of course, Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, is, as you likely know, uh, an organisation which works in conflict zones and in some of the most difficult, dangerous communities and places on earth. Oh, and they also foster um, in their spare time, as many of us do here too, or many people in our family, church family here do too. But whenever we catch up, Lou and I come away uplifted and inspired by their selfless dedication and commitment to others. But here's the point. To the best of my knowledge, this couple do not share Lou and my Christian faith, um, or at least not in the same manner. And I often think that despite that, they unintentionally make my own commitment to making the world better seem pretty half-hearted uh, at best. And maybe you know someone similar, someone you work with or you live near or you go to school or uni with. They're not followers of Jesus. But as individuals or couples of families, they make the world better and perhaps even outshine uh, many of us in that regard, uh, which is saying something because there's some pretty awesome people here at New Vine uh, who do some amazing things and good on you all. Or maybe, maybe you're that person this morning. You don't identify as a, as a person of Christian faith, but you care deeply about the common good or creation, uh, nature, the environment, or just human kindness. And if so, well, I applaud you. And forgive us uh, when we don't measure up to what our own scriptures uh, call us to be and do in the world. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, how do we make sense of all of that biblically and theologically? Why does it seem there are so many good people uh, who inspire us with what they do, who aren't led to do so by the love uh, of Jesus 
or because of scripture or because of the leading of the spirit and so on. You see, I think as Christians, we are sometimes better at explaining why there's so much evil in the world than we are at explaining why there is still, despite all of that which we see daily on the nightly news or in your news feeds on Facebook, there is still so much good in the world. It doesn't always make the headlines, which is part of the reason why we're wanting to call out some people in our local community who are doing good things, even just in the way they greet you in their shop, or by running a bunch of different programs through the Maryland Neighbourhood Centre. Uh, for the disadvantaged in our community, grocery donations, uh, free uh, bread, uh, services where they help people pay their bills and sort out their finances and so on. That's why we want to give a shout out to these people because despite all the evil in the world, there is still a lot of people doing good things. And we as Christians, we have a good explanation, I think, for why there is so much evil in the world. The Bible calls it Sin, And it's one reason that I think the Christian worldview makes the best sense of evil. It doesn't try to sugarcoat the human condition uh, in all its goodness and in all uh, times of its horrible nature. But what about the good that people do? Well, the Bible's explanation of evil is balanced by another key part of its picture of human beings. And the human condition. But before we go there, let me just quickly recap uh, the last couple of weeks in case you've joined us at this stage in our series. So, our series is called For God So Loved, and let's just do a recap of where we are so far. We're in week three of our series, and in this series, we are looking at the epic, overarching story of Scripture through the lens of the immense and relentless love of God for the world, which he dreamed into being and then made a reality. And today's topic is, for God so loved that he made us, he made humanity, humankind. And that story, thankfully, doesn't begin with the story of temptation and fall in Genesis 3, which is where we see in the biblical story the entry of evil and sin into the world in this kind of mysterious way that seems, as John pointed out last week, not just to affect us and our relationships with other people, but also affects the creation itself. The story of humanity, however, begins not in a sense even with Genesis 1, not even perhaps right back there. In fact, as we saw in the first sermon on this series, the one I nearly repeated um, today, uh, even before the foundation of the world, the story begins with a God who is outside of time and space and matter, defined by love, by self-giving goodness, by other-centered, other-honoring love between the Father, the Son and the Spirit outside of time, in eternity in other words. And that God, as John Adia highlighted so wonderfully last week, creates a cosmos as an expression of that eternal love. It's a world filled with extravagant goodness, beauty and bounty, and one which God continues to sustain despite all that humanity's sin has done to damage it. 
As John explained, uh, this was a fascinating part of uh, his presentation last week, even contemporary particle physics bumps up against the idea that there's this invisible force holding together and sustaining the very elementary particles of life and of all things, all matter, uh, and in fact, antimatter for that matter. The quarks and the bosons, they, these are the tiniest fundamental building blocks of the cosmos. And quantum physicists have their own sort of ref ways of referring to this mysterious force. Sometimes it's called the Higgs field. Have I got that right, John? Okay. All good so far? Um, but it sounds like a theologian trying to do quantum physics. It's dangerous territory. Qu uh, quantum physicists call this uh, by a, a number of different ideas, but it sounds very much, what they describe, as John pointed out last week, sounds very much like that there is a good, loving God actively preserving the world, the universe, in every moment. So God creates a wonderful world, but he sustains it and preserves it and protects it as well. And we also saw uh, in John's message last week that into this flourishing, bountiful, natural world, teeming with life and vitality and a vast diversity of animals, fish, birds and plant life, um, I think you said last week 350,000 different varieties of beetle, just for one thing. Uh, into this, into this uh, environment of diversity and, and uh, beauty, by God's creative hand appears a particular creature which we call us, or actually we call them human beings, um, but that's us. And while all of the other plants and animals and birds and fish and sea creatures are said in the, the Genesis story of creation, are said to have been made after their kind, this particular animal is different. This particular animal isn't said to be made after its own kind, at least not at the beginning. This particular animal is said to be made according to God's own image and likeness. But what is exactly does that mean? The image and likeness of God. How does it help us answer our question today, which is why some people who aren't followers of Jesus can do such great things? Or as the author and Bible scholar Craig Blomberg puts it, what can account for both aspects of human nature? What can account for the perplexing array of human behaviour? Very good and very bad, enacted throughout the world and across the centuries. Well, today we're going to try and answer that question by exploring these other questions. What does the image and likeness mean, especially as understood in the Bible? And also in the context of the ancient world, what do those words and terms mean? And we'll look at a couple of key passages of Scripture. Secondly, how does that help us today? Particularly, how does our understanding of this help us understand our world, other people, and how we engage in our community? And finally, what are some practical applications and actions? that sound like a plan? All right, great. Of course, the most familiar passage for anyone who was a kid in Sunday school um, is Genesis 1, 26 to 31. But because we've touched on that briefly and because John looked at that last week, we're actually going to mostly look elsewhere for hints at what the Bible means when it says that humanity is made in the image 
and likeness of God. And we're going to look in this instance at Genesis 5, 1 to 3. Feel free to open that up on your app if you like, but I do have it on the screen. Or, or if you're really old school and you've got a Bible. Um, anybody have a Bible here today? Oh, okay. I, Rosie, God bless you. You know those old things called books, physical? There's one over here too? Oh, brilliant. Okay, well, well done. Um, extra points uh, for you today. But whether you have a hard copy or an e-copy, open up uh, if you want to. And in this passage, Genesis 5, 1 to 3, we see a brief retelling of the, of the story of the creation of humanity in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And it also looks forward uh, as well in time to successive generations. So here it is. This is the record of the family line of Adam. When God created humankind, and the word uh, here is Adam, from which we get the proper name Adam, but it also means more broadly just humankind. It can be a a name of a single person, but it can also refer to all of humankind. So when God created Adam, he made them in his likeness, or demut, of God. This is the Hebrew, by the way, that sits behind our English translation. He created the male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and named them humankind, or Adam again. Now when Adam, that's the single uh, individual referred to here, had lived 130 years, he far, that's a pretty good innings actually, isn't it? 130 years? Don't think I'm going to make 130 years uh, on current form. Uh, after he had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, um, according to his image, and he named him Seth. Now I'll just um, highlight those words uh, for you. And in the passage, we see the same Hebrew words as are used back in Genesis 1. Uh, Adam, uh, Selem, uh, and Demut. Uh, and these are words which are commonly found in the ancient word. So what do they mean? Well, as I've already said, uh, Adam can mean all of humankind or just a single person, single man particularly. Um, but these other words are the ones that I want to focus in on today. So the word selem, which we translate as image, was commonly used in the ancient world and elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to uh, statues or images or idols, things made of, of uh, stone or wood, uh, whatever it might be, to represent a god. And of course, the Old Testament speaks very strongly against anyone trying to form an image of the Hebrew god, our god, uh, Yahweh. And then this other term, which we translate as likeness, demut, means, uh, well, that likeness or shape or appearance. It can also refer to a builder's draft, if you like, a kind of a rough blueprint um, for construction. So it has different uses and meanings. But these are very general meanings. How do we kind of put those uh, into some sort of uh, intelligible understanding of how they describe humanity's image-bearing and likeness to God. Well, this has been the subject of immense debate across 2,000 years, uh, which I'm going to detail for you this morning. Uh, or not. No, we're going to fly through it really quickly, actually. But even today, scholars are still kind of trying to uh, figure out precisely what is meant uh, in the Scripture by these terms. But there are hints and tips that we can find. These are some of the ideas, just really quickly. Perhaps it's our, some have said, our rationality. St. Augustine uh, was very big on this idea. 
Perhaps it's our capacity to reason, it's our intelligence, our ability even to self-reflect like God can. Or perhaps it's our moral reasoning, the capacity to know right from wrong, for example, or even to speak and communicate. Or is it our relationality? After all, if we're created by the God who exists in eternal relationships, that is the Father, Son and Spirit, wouldn't we expect that those created in the image of that God would also be highly relational too. So that makes some sense. And others have said, maybe it's our function or our role uh, to, to rule the planet as representatives of God as king. In other words, to sing, to serve as God's, if you like, vice regents. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But those who are kind of appointed with power to rule with or on behalf of um, the higher uh, king. Or stewards, we sometimes say, with the authority and accountability to care for a realm in place of the ultimate ruler. And I think John touched a little bit on this idea before. Now, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, anybody seen Lord of the Rings? I think there's a, there's a new series coming out, isn't there? It's on Netflix. New Lord of the Rings uh, kind of prequel series, I think. The Ring of Power. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's the one. Waiting for that. Well, if you've seen the original Lord of the Rings or read the book, you might remember Faramir. Um, there was lots of names in there, wasn't there? But anyway, Faramir was the last steward of Gondor who cared for the realm while awaiting the return of the true king, uh, which turns out to be Aragorn, the rightful high king of Gondor. So uh, Faramir serves as this kind of steward or um, caretaker, if you like, uh, while awaiting the return of the king. So maybe the idea here is that we care for the planet on behalf of the high king. Well, in the ancient Near East context, uh, kings were often seen to be images of, high, of gods. That is, the kings were seen to be divine representatives on earth. So this gives some credence, I guess, to this idea. For example, the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, is referred to in one document as the perfect likeness of the god. And that is, endowed with the divine qualities and attributes which are the source of his power and capacity to rule on behalf of that God. And if we look again at Genesis 1.26, there does seem to be some kind of connection, even in our scriptures, between the idea of the image of God and this idea of ruling, perhaps on behalf of that God. So you can see that connection. Uh, when God created humankind, he made them in the likeness and image of God, so they may rule over the fish and the animals, etc. So maybe there's something in this. But if we come back to the text of Genesis 5, which we were looking at before, we see a couple of other things. Here it is. Or at least one other really significant thing. In the same way that Adam is said to be made after the likeness of God, we find also that Seth... Adam's son is seen to be to bear the likeness and image of Adam. Okay, who's lost? Who's still hanging in there? Who's a kind of a family likeness? So in this text, what we might say, is it about ruling? Is it a kind of a royal resemblance between God and the king? Well, perhaps. But it seems to suggest more this idea, as AJ suggested, of a family likeness. In this passage, what we see are not just terms of kingship, but of kinship or of family. Adam and Seth 
uh, father and son. And while it may also suggest that the son becomes the one um, that has the, the right to rule passed on to them, here in Genesis it seems more uh, less a role and more a relationship. So this is kind of a fifth option, if you like, going back to my slide from earlier. In other words, that we bear the image and likeness of God. Let me try and sum this up a little bit. It's another way of saying that God is the heavenly father of human beings and that human beings are the earthly human children of God and that we trace our origin and our family likeness of some kind back to God himself. But here's the really radical thing about the biblical picture of this relationship and image bearing. Whereas in other ancient societies, it was the kings and usually the kings alone who were said to be the sons or image bearers of the tribe's God. In the Bible, this idea is democratized. That is, it's said to be true of every human being. It's a big difference. Every human being, according to the Christian story, is an image bearer of God. Hence, Christians, from the earliest days of the Christian church, took in and cared for infants who were left out to die on Rome's rubbish dumps. Because children, especially female children or those with disabilities, were regarded by the Romans as dispensable. And in fact, some of the Greek pro, um, uh, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle uh, uh, said that uh, unwanted children should be, got, uh, should be made rid of as an act of duty. But Christians led the charge against this kind of treatment of people based on this radical idea that every human being, no matter their class or status in society, no matter their gender, no matter their capabilities or limits, is made in the image and likeness of God, bears God's own family likeness. And so we might say that all these other realities stem, these other things that we've talked about, stem from this more fundamental biblical picture that all human beings are royal sons and daughters of the high king. Of course, we know that through the fall, because of sin, that image is marred, the relationship is ruptured, and we are, we are not now as we should be. Hence, instead of being unambiguously good like God, that is, instead of being totally good, perfectly good like God our Father, we've become fickle and flawed and fallen, capable not just of great good, but also of terrible evil. If the image of God is a mirror, if you like, then we are broken and shattered. So that to look in the mirror is now to see the breaks and the shattered pieces more prominently than the original image itself. But this is not the end of the story in Scripture for the image and likeness of God. For when we come to the New Testament, we see some really vital things on this uh, idea. As John reminded us last week, when we come to the New Testament, we find that the Son, here speaking about Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
In fact, we might even say that Christ was the image of God before there was Adam. He was the royal ruling son in all of eternity and the true human image of the Father after whose image we are made. Now, I'm getting a little bit theological there. Is that okay? Does that make some kind of sense? Even before Adam, Christ, as the eternal son, was the one who imaged the Father perfectly. And in his humanity, that image was not marred. But here it is that we see the true nature of God again in the person of Jesus Christ. In him we see the true image bearer. And in him we see again what it means to be fully and truly human. So, while the image is in us, uh, broken and shattered, for Paul and other New Testament writers, the image is in the process of restoration. For Christ, by the Spirit, not only bears the image of God perfectly, fully without blemish, he is restoring it also to us and to humankind. Romans uh, 8.29, for example, says, For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Or in 2 Corinthians, after we all who with unveiled faces contemplate um, the Lord's glory are being, oh sorry, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. But what has happened in part will one day be completed and made whole again. Remember our question from earlier from the Bible scholar Craig Blomberg? Well, thankfully, he helps us by answering his own question, which is always very helpful. In answer to his own question, he says, what can, what can account for the perplexing array of human behavior? Very good and very bad. Well, he says, I submit that only the Judeo-Christian notion of humans created in the image of God can do so. And only when it's supplemented by the following ideas, if you like. Firstly, that sin has deeply and profoundly corrupted all human beings so that all people in the natural state have the potential for committing acts of unspeakable evil. It's a sobering thought because this is true, he says, of all people. Secondly, though, the image of God nevertheless remains strong enough. Whoops, sorry, I'll move on. The image of God nevertheless remains strong enough in people outside of Christ that they likewise have the potential for self-sacrifice and acts of amazing goodness. And thirdly, the process of salvation or redemption, these are big churchy words, but, um, so forgive us if they're new words to you. But he says the process of salvation or redemption involves the partial recreation of God's image in our lives as believers in this world and the full recreation of that image in the world to come. And therein lies our hope. The image of God helps us understand what it means to be human, to face great tragedy and great beauty. Is that helpful? Does that help answer that first question? Well, the other two questions which we're going to move through much more quickly are these in kind of wrapping up. How does that help us today? And what are some practical implications? Well, firstly, all human beings are made in the image of God. 
It's a wonderful affirmation and a unique affirmation in the Christian scriptures. Just as creation itself is intrinsically valuable because it's made by God as an expression of his love, so, and in particular, humanity is intrinsically valuable, whatever has happened since. This is a thought which I said which has revolutionized and laid the foundations for the way human beings are viewed and valued in our world today, mostly. But it's also an explanation of why some of us, well, all of us, in fact, are capable of immense goodness, but also capable of evil. We can misuse our stewardship to take the reign for ourselves, reigns for ourselves, and reign for ourselves, not for others. But secondly, Christians are, are realists. We see the brokenness of humanity, the seriousness of evil and sin, and its destructiveness for those made in the image of God and all creation. But as well as being realists, we do not lose hope. We uh, have hope and faith in the restoration of the brokenness. Because that restoration has already commenced and the transformation continues. And because one day it will be complete when we see our Father reunited again, face to face. So what can that look like for us in practice? Well, Christians affirm the goodness and worth of all people, even those from whom we differ and with whom we disagree, because they are loved by God, the Heavenly Father, whose image they bear. And this, I think, should shape the way that we engage in our world, in conversation, in debate even. It sets a framework for us to understand that God is for that other person more fundamentally than he says no to their sin and rebellion. He is more fundamentally for them and he wants to see them restored through Christ to a relationship with him and their image of God. And when we understand that God is fundamentally for other people as his children, then we too can reposture ourselves to be fundamentally for other people, even where we disagree, even where we part ways. But we still have something in common. Can you imagine how that might revolutionise the way we engage on social media or in debates about politics? We can still disagree, but we do so in a way that recognises the other person as of immense value and worth and dignity. So beware the dehumanization and demonization of others, even if we disagree with them, their morals, their beliefs, or their choices. James, uh, that's the Apostle James, uh, James across the centuries exhorts us on this point when he says, with the tongue, he criticizes this, this practice, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. A human being is always a person, never a thing, and never our real enemy. But secondly, I think this also, in a practical way, 
um, encourages us to stand in solidarity, to stand together with people, uh, those who have circumstances or through the treatment of others have been deprived of their dignity and their human opportunity to flourish. Those in need of protection, preservation of their life and their dignity, their freedoms, etc. But we can also stand in solidarity with others who care for the well-being and welfare of people made in God's image. And that means where we find others like Lou and my friends that I spoke of earlier, or others in our community like Terry, who we highlighted this morning. When we find people like that who are also committed to the good of other people or the good of our natural world, we can work together in common cause for the common good. Of course, those of us who know Jesus will pray and work and witness with the hope that all people will come to know Christ and enter into his restoration of the divine image, the restoration of their relationship with their heavenly Father. But in the interim, we can affirm the image of God in all people, God's love for them and his call to them to know Christ and in Christ find forgiveness, life and a Father who loves them beyond their wildest dreams. And that brings me to a very particular practical action this week. And after today's service, we're going to go out and clean up. And thank you to all who've come ready for that and who will participate with us. Uh, One small way of looking after this wonderful creation in which God has placed us. But a particular follow-up action for next week and the coming weeks uh, is this. As you saw earlier uh, with the photos with uh, Terry uh, from the the Neighbourhood Centre. Oh, let me bring this up. Here we are. Uh, Terry and her programs and volunteers are one example of people deeply committed to the good of, our, of people in our community, to serving others. So today we want to kind of throw down the, the challenge, it can be part of our Thousand Acts initiative, to donate groceries and personal care items for those in need in our community. And we are going to partner with Maryland Community Centre to see those goods distributed So while you're shopping this week, if you can add a couple of items or maybe a whole hamper worth of goods, we'll collect those up and we'll pass them on to Terry and her team uh, because they already have a sort of a distribution hub, a distribution process um, to serve people in our community who deserve the dignity of royal sons and daughters of the king, even if they don't know it in those terms. And we tried to make it as straightforward as possible. I know you can't read that, but we have um, a bunch of these slips out just outside that, the made auditorium doors on the counter out there. You can grab one of those. It's got suggestions of the types of things that you can donate. Of course, you can um, donate other things as well, but I should say this list has been uh, dietitian approved um, for, what that, for what that means. But there's uh, two types of hampers that if you want to just make it easy, we've got a list of things you can put in a hamper, a food and groceries hamper, and also a personal hygiene hamper. Um, or you can just get a couple of items when you're shopping next, if that's all you can afford. Um, even one can of something is potentially a meal for someone else. And as Jill said, when we spoke to Terry... Um, I asked her this question of, of all of the growing needs and she said that you know, demand is just skyrocketing at the moment, even for basics. And when I said to her, what's the one thing that is needed most? And I was thinking she was going to say, oh, at the moment it's fuel vouchers or at the moment it's, it's, it's food vouchers so people can go and 
or something like that. But she said, as Jewel said earlier, she replied, the thing that is most needed at the moment is kindness. Amid all the needs, all the wants, uh, in a world of want, of all the small indignities and of all the lives of quiet desperation that people around us are living, Terry's take on what the world needs most was wonderful, wasn't it? Kindness. All people, the good, the bad, and the oftentimes unlovely, bear the family likeness of our Father, the royal resemblance of the King, caring for the image of God in such people. It's an act of worship. It's an act of loving devotion to, to God that we honour and protect and take care of, not idols of wood and stone but his loving divine images around us. It's a way in which we can worship our Heavenly Father. Through kindness, through goodness, through sharing with them what they need to survive and also what they need for eternal life. The message that they too are children and heirs of the High King of Heaven. And perhaps this is why Jesus could say, insofar as you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters. You did it to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you loved so much that you made us. That out of the overflow of the love that you had for the Son and the Spirit in all of eternity, you created a beautiful world. And the high point of creation was humanity. Thank you that despite all that we've done to damage the people that you made in your image and likeness, to damage the planet on which we live in, nevertheless, you persevere with us because of that same love. And that you've undertaken to restore what has been lost, to fix what is broken, to heal what has been hurt, to heal the harm that we've done. And that you've done so in Jesus through a cross and an empty tomb as the image of the invisible God. May we live our lives after his example, those of us who claim to be his followers. May we live after his example, the way that he showed us what humanity consists of, what being an image bearer of God um, consists of, using our call to reign and rule as he did. Though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. May we give ourselves on behalf of others as our act of worship for you. We bless you, we praise you, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy, your grace, for Jesus and your spirit. Amen.